Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host today, Jim Minter, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, who's a professor of ag economics here at Purdue. We're gonna review the results from the June Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer Survey of farmers from across the nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers across the US to learn more about their perspective on the ag economy. This month's Ag Economy Barometer Survey was conducted from the 21st through the 25th of June. So the Ag Economy Barometer declined pretty sharply this month, Michael. It declined to a reading of 137 from 158. So that was a, a 21 point drop. And if you look underneath, it was really driven mostly by a decline in current conditions. The index of current conditions fell from 178 to 149. So uh, that was a, a pretty big drop. Um, 29 point drop. The index of future expectations fell as well, but it didn't fall nearly as much. It fell from reading of 149 to 132. So that was a 17 point drop. Well, what do you make of that? I mean, I coming in, I wasn't surprised it went down, but I was surprised it went down as much as it did. What do you think? That was definitely the case with me. I, I, I thought maybe it might weaken a little bit, but not as near as much as it did. Uh, you know, given the strong prices, I thought that would hold it hold the index of current conditions up there a little bit, uh, but obviously I was wrong. I think I think there's some I think there's some, some underlying concerns related to uncertainty, um, uh, crop prospects in some parts some parts of the Corn Belt and Great Plains is probably entering people's mind. Um, you know, prices have been extremely volatile, uh, and so I think I I just think this this general notion of uncertainty and and possible possible price inflation. Uh, is concerning to to respondents. Yeah, you mentioned prices. I guess I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. If you think about our May survey versus the June survey, prices were significantly weaker, especially on corn, soybeans, and hogs. Um, you know, if you think about the peak in soybean prices, for example, versus the prices the week that we conducted the survey, and I want to point out to our listeners that this survey was completed, um, the last observations were collected on June 25th, so that was before the acreage report came out on June 30th and the rally that, that followed that. So um, those prices were significantly lower. If you look at the peak um, versus prices, uh, um, when we were collecting data, um, soybean prices down 250, almost $3 a bushel. Um, corn prices weaker as well. So, you know, there was some price weakness there. Now, by historical standards, you're right. Those are still strong prices by historical standards but they're weaker than they were a month earlier. And I think that probably contributed quite a bit to the, to the negativity. Like you though, I probably underestimated how much that was impacting people's perspective. Um, the Farm Financial Performance Index, I think was really the driver, kind of as you alluded to this with respect to that current conditions index, that uh, financial performance index fell from 126 in May to 96 in June. And in fact, that index peaked back in April at 138. So if you compare it to April, it's down 42 points. Um, that's a big drop in that financial performance index. Again, that's a little bit surprising given the relative strength um, by, by compared to history, long-term history. And most crop prices, um, the livestock sector has not been quite as positive, although at that time, you know, we were still looking at some stronger hog prices, but nevertheless, um, 
this one surprised me probably more than the, the fact that the index or current conditions uh, declined as much as it did, because if you start looking at net return prospects for this fall, they're still pretty good. Now there's a lot of uncertainty around those, those prospects, uh, but they look pretty good. And so, and, and so I wonder if producers are thinking, well, prices are not gonna be this strong uh, this fall. And so uh, moving into 2022, uh, it's not going to be as good as what it has been uh, earlier in 21. And, and so uh, it has to be something like that, that that's going through their mind uh, when they responded to this question. Yeah, I think it's probably important to remember that this is, you know, we're really measuring sentiment. We're not asking people to look out their balance sheets. We're not asking them to, you know, compute their income statement or their projected income statement. Um, it, it's how do you feel about your farm's financial performance? And again, I, I suspect the negativity of the declines that we were seeing in commodity prices probably fueled this. Um, I know that you've done a lot of work with respect to um, gem generating simulated returns for kind of a typical West Central Indiana corn soybean operation. And you know, your projections still look pretty darn good by historical standards, right? So I think that's uh, you know, maybe the difference between what, what might turn out to be true when we actually finish the year and look at our accounting records versus how do we feel relative to a month ago? And a month ago, we felt better, right? And I think this is reflecting that, that negativity. And as you point out, I just think the uncertainty. I think one, one thing that maybe this suggests is some of these folks were looking at it and maybe projecting into the future and saying, well, prices have declined significantly over the last 30 days. They're going to continue to drop over the summer. And um, by the time harvest rolls around, maybe we're going to see some even weaker prices. This uh, kind of spilled over into the Farm Capital Investment Index. It was weaker as well. Uh, the Capital Investment Index declined nine points from the reading of 65 to 54. And I guess one of the things that was interesting about that to me was the fact that if you compare that 54 to a year ago, that's about 10% below where we were in June of 2020. Um, you know, if I think about the investment environment today versus June of 2020, my inclination is to say it looks a lot better. And yet the index doesn't really support that idea. So that was kind of a surprise. If you look underneath, and I think this is probably the interesting part here, uh, we've started asking a couple of follow-up questions beyond that uh, single question that the investment index is based on to learn more about, you know, what it is people are thinking about. So if we started asking a question, I think last year, that specifically focused on farm machinery. And then here recently, just the last couple of months, we've added a, a question focused on construction of buildings and grain bins. And that might maybe shed a little bit of light on this because what we seem to be picking up is people are a lot more negative on the construction of grain bins and buildings than they are in farm machinery. Um, and if you look at the numbers, Let's see, the percentage of producers that said they plan to reduce construction of buildings and grain bins was 61% this month. Last month, it was 58%. Those are the only two observations we have on that one. Um, the percentage that said that they plan to increase their construction of buildings and grain bins was just 9% this month, and that was 14% a month earlier. If we look at farm machinery, it's a different story. Um, the percentage of producers who uh, plan to reduce their uh, purchases relative to a year earlier is at 44% versus 46 in May. So it actually got a little bit better. 
uh, the percentage of people plan to hold their purchases constant actually went up to 45% versus 40% a month earlier. And the percentage of producers planning to increase purchases did fall. That went from 14% in May to 10% this month. But that's a different set of numbers um, than what we're seeing on buildings and grain bins. And maybe more supportive of the kind of you know, information we're picking up from people like auctioneers who are reporting very strong prices at farm auctions for used machinery, um, tight supplies of new equipment. Um, so that machinery situation seems to be quite a bit different than the buildings and grain bin situation. What, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think this farm machinery uh, could change mightily uh, if, if we get if we get more resolution in terms of what the yields are going to be as we get closer to actually realizing a crop. Uh, assuming that assuming that it's close to trend, I think they'll be more positive, uh, and there'll be a lot fewer people going to reduce machinery purchases. And depending on what prices do, if prices stay where they're currently at. I can't help but believe there'll be quite a few people that are constant or increase their purchases this fall. Yeah, I think one of the challenges in machinery is trying to figure out, are people holding back because they can't get new machinery? Um, you know, that's certainly the case in things like pickup trucks. Uh, from what I've been able to gather, if you wanted to buy, for example, a new tractor, um, at most locations, you would have to say, you would be looking at placing an order uh, with potential delivery uh, maybe at the end of this year, but more likely in 2022. And so, you know, one of the issues there is is kind of this just simply availability. And on the construction side, you know, we didn't ask this specifically, but you know, one of the concerns has to be this rapid run up in production in, in, in construction costs. If you want to put up any kind of a building or even a grain bin, it's more expensive now than it was just a few months ago. And um, with respect to buildings, it's probably difficult to actually get one booked. So there's some kind of uh, complicating factors going on with respect to uh, our survey responses, I suspect. Of course, we always ask people about farmland. Um, the short-term farmland value expectation index declined nine points to 148 versus 157. And the long-term index declined as well. It didn't decline as much. I think it was just down about three or four points compared to a month earlier. So there was some weakness in those farmland indices. However, I think you have to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because in both cases, the index values were the third highest on record. So from a kind of longer-term perspective, people are still pretty bullish on farmland values, maybe not quite as bullish as they were a few weeks ago, which is probably tied to what was going on in that current condition index. What do you think? I think there's some several positives for both short-term and long-term farmland values. Uh, you know, certainly, as I indicated before, I, I think earnings are going to be fairly strong this fall, uh, despite the fact that our financial performance index uh, declined quite a bit. Uh, so we'll see how that turns out. But also, interest rates remain low, and it, it looks like they're going to remain low uh, for quite a while yet. Uh, and then also inflation. Uh, you know, inflation is actually positive. Uh, for land values, and so uh, land is is, a, is is typically considered a hedge against inflation. So there's several positive things going on right now related to farmland, both short-term and long-term. Yeah, I think we'll have to watch both of these index indices uh, over the next several months and see how they shake out. But I tended to shake off this kind of short-term decline in both of those farmland value indices, looking at it from the perspective of these are still some of the highest readings we've ever gotten since we started collecting data back in 2015. So yeah, I concur, very small changes. 
this is the second month in a row that we asked corn and soybean producers about their cash rental expectations for the 2022 crop year. And there was a change here. I think last month, roughly two thirds of the producers in our survey said they expected to see higher cash rental rates next year versus this year. That number did decline this month. It dropped back to 47%. Again, I think that was related to the weakness in corn and soybean prices we've seen since the May survey from the, to the June survey. Um, but I think probably the more interesting thing here is among those who expect to see a rise in rates, they really expect to see a significant increase, don't they? That's certainly the case. I mean, uh, almost a third of those that expect an increase expect rates to rise by more than 10%. It's been quite a while since we've had uh, rates, you know, rates increase uh, 10%. It's been, uh, you know, you have to go back 2010, 2011, 2012. And so, and so it, it's been quite a while since we've seen those kinds of increases. And, and uh, you know, if, if earnings do end up being fairly strong, um, as we get a little bit more better idea what the crop's going to look like, and a little better idea what the prices are going to be, uh, we could see those increases 10% or more. Yeah, and just to give a little more perspective, you know, you've looking at you've you've taken a look at cash rental rates going back, I think, um, what maybe 60 years or so. How many times have we seen a cash rental rate increase of 10% or more? It's pretty rare in total, right? It's not very common. You had a period in the 70s where you saw some increases. 10% uh, or above and, and some periods and, you know, from the 2007 to 2013 period, particularly 10, 11 and 12, where you saw that increase, but it's, it's fairly rare. Uh, but I also would like to point out, it's been quite a while since we've had four or 5% inflation. Uh, and, and so that's really the wild card here uh, when you start talking cash rents and land values. And I think that what we're seeing in terms of cash rents, in terms of the respondents uh, is, is consistent with the fact that uh, the index of current conditions decline. I really do think part of that decline is, is not just driven by price weakness. I think it's driven by concerns that costs are gonna increase, uh, including cash rent. Uh, cash rent uh, is, is a third of all, all production costs for corn and even a higher percent for soybeans. And so if cash rent in uh, increases, you're gonna see some uh, pretty strong increases in break even prices. That's a good point. And, and this month we did, uh, I think for the first time, really ask producers for some information about their expectations about inflation. We asked them about what they thought was gonna happen to the price of uh, inputs. And we also asked them what they thought there was gonna happen with, with respect to uh, prices for consumer goods. And just to kind of summarize that, I think on the um, input side, uh, producers said they, they thought there was a pretty good chance that we could see those prices inflate at about four times the rate that we have seen over the last 10 years. Is that right? Yeah, there, there was a, a substantial group of, uh, of producers that thought that thought uh, you know, inflation was going to be 8% or higher. Price, pay, price of paid index was going to increase 8% 8 or higher. Uh, it's been a long time since so we've seen those kind of increases. And so that's certainly got to be concerning. Yeah, and to put that in perspective, I think and on the survey, we did give people some perspective on that. Over the last 10 years, that uh, prices paid for inputs index has risen at an average rate, I think, of about 1.8%. And so for somebody to say that they thought prices were going to increase 8% or more, that's a pretty, pretty shocking number. And, um, you know, I, but I think it's consistent with what you said with respect to uh, cash flow rates and people being concerned. Um, they're looking at strong prices for things like farm machinery. 
not much discounting going on in, in that environment. Um, prices for other inputs gone up as well. So, uh, uh, and, and I think to the extent that they hire higher workers, I think those costs are, are relatively high compared to what they were even a year or two ago. And, and so there's just several cost categories that, that are concerning. Fertilizer's another one uh, that, that's, that's increased compared to where it was a, a year or two ago. But going back to the prices paid index, only 21% thought it was gonna be between zero and 2%. And, like, and, and as you indicated, that's where it's been. Uh, that's where the average has been the last 10 years. And so very few of the respondents uh, think it's gonna be where, you know, it's gonna stay uh, where, where it's been for the last several years. Yeah, one way to think of that is to say 80% or almost 80% of the people in the survey think we're entering a new regime yes. with respect to input price inflation, right? One way to think of that. So you mentioned uh, farm labor and, and uh, for the second year in a row here in June, we asked people about whether or not they were having a, uh, any difficulty hiring any non-family labor for their farm operation. And a year ago, 30% of the people in our survey said they were either having some difficulty or a lot of difficulty. This year, that skyrocketed. 66%, roughly two thirds of the people in the survey that hire non-farm or non-family members said they were either having some difficulty or a lot of difficulty. And that lot of difficulty category by itself was 30%. Big change there. And so availability is an issue. The price they're paying for that non-family labor is probably an issue. Um, what's your take, Michael? Well, this is certainly not unique to agriculture. If you, if you look at all small businesses or small businesses in general, even large businesses, uh, they're they're having more difficulty, uh, you know, finding people uh, finding people to work, and so and 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 so I've also heard from several farmers uh, that they've had difficulty, uh, you know, finding finding hired labor, and so uh, I'm glad we asked this this question because uh, you know some of the stories we we're hearing are actually actually came out in this survey. You know, two thirds of the people are having some to, to a, some difficulty to a lot of difficulty hiring uh, labor. That's a crisis. Yeah, it certainly can be, and it depends on a little bit on the farming operation. But yeah, it could be much more than an inconvenience. In fact, you know, we've heard some stories this year about really having to draft some people in that that maybe had stepped back and stepped away from farming from a retirement standpoint, coming back and in and and filling in because they couldn't hire anybody uh, as they have been able to do in the past. So the last topic uh, I guess I wanted to bring up, Michael, was uh, this whole solar leasing area. So there's been a lot of interest in what's going on with respect to leasing farmland for solar energy production. 32% um, of the people in our survey said they're aware of some solar leasing opportunities for their farming operation. Drilling down, um, 9% of the people in our survey, 9% 9 of our respondents, said they've actually had some discussions with companies about solar leasing for their farmland. Uh, not quite 3%, 2.7% of the people in our survey said they've already signed a solar leasing agreement for their farming operation or for at least some of their farmland. I should, has, I should point out, it doesn't mean they've signed up everything. It means they've signed some, some of their farmland. And to put some perspective on that, that's about double the percentage of farms that reported signing a carbon sequestration contract this past winter and spring on previous barometer surveys. So there's a lot of interest in, in people leasing farmland for non-crop production uh, types of issues. Um, 
That's that's been very interesting. What's what's your take on that, Michael? I was a little surprised. I was a little surprised that almost a third of the producers are aware of some solar leasing opportunities. That just tells you how widespread some of these opportunities really are. I mean, we we've both heard stories about you know people looking at, at contracts, but uh, but you never know how widespread that really is until you do a survey like this. And so that was the most surprising part of these questions was the fact that there were so many people uh, were aware of opportunities. Yeah, and I think it's probably a good time to point out to our listeners and remember, this is a national survey. So this implies that those opportunities to some extent are spread across the country um, and not, not isolated in a particular state or particular region. They, they really are pretty diverse. Um, so then we followed up on the folks that said they had engaged in some discussions, um, which is that 9% of our total survey. We asked them for some information about what kind of rates these firms were offering for these solar leases. And it was all over the map. Um, we had people responding less than $500 an acre. We had people responding $1,000 an acre or more. Um, and it was pretty well spread across those. I think it was 32% at less than 500. 22% were in the 500 to less than 750 category. 19% said it was the range was 750 to less than a thousand, and then a little over a fourth, 27%, said they had been offered a thousand dollars per acre or more. Um, you said that the the um, the percentage of large percentage of people that were least aware of opportunities was maybe the most surprising thing to you. I don't know that I had a real strong a priori expectation about these rates, but I was. When I saw the chart, I mean, I was a little surprised at, at how spread out it was. Uh, when you think about some people being offered less than 500, some other people being offered 1,000 or more, wow, that's a big spread. Yeah, the less than 500 was probably the most surprising to me. I, you know, I, I, I had heard rates higher than that, uh, and so I, I wasn't expecting to, to, to see almost a third, <laughs> a third indicate that, that they were looking at something less than 500. Uh, and so it just it just tells us how important it is to do your homework, uh, you know, check with other people in other areas and see what kind of rates are being offered elsewhere, uh, so you don't end up in one of those uh, contracts that's really low compared to the other ones. Yeah, and I think we have a little bit of experience here with respect to, for example, the, uh, the wind energy contracts. Um, and discussing before we started recording, Michael, you pointed out, you know, we had some experience with respect to livestock production contracts. In the early days, it takes a while for equilibrium to be reached, meaning um, both sides of the market are kind of feeling each other out a little bit, trying to sound each other out, figure out what the, what the equilibrium might be. It's very early days in the solar leasing arena. Um, of course, earlier we collected information on carbon. It's early days in the carbon leasing arena. Um, I guess for our listeners, if you're thinking about one of these contracts, one of the things I would do is pull back a little bit and, and say, let's wait and see what happens. Let's kind of wait and see what happens here with respect to these rates. A lot of uncertainty there. Um, and I wouldn't be, well, I'll see what you think about this. I wouldn't be too concerned about being left out. Um, those opportunities are going to be out time, there. If, if, the, if there's that much, if the, the opportunities are that widespread, if you miss out the first time, they're probably going to. They're probably a chance they're going to come back uh, to the same area and 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 offer contracts again. 
And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, uh, if, if you can't negotiate a, a decent rate, uh, walk away. Yeah, we're going to continue to collect more information on both carbon and solar leasing. So, you know, kind of stay tuned for more as, as time goes on. But it's, uh, this is an interesting topic area, and it's in a very important one. Um, a number of people around the Midwest, uh, in particular, we know, are, are considering these opportunities. Um, so it's, it's going to be an evolving area and one that, that kind of cries out for some more information. So. Well, Michael, that kind of wraps up our discussion of the highlights of this month's Ag Economy Barometer Survey. Um, if you want more details, you can go to the Barometer website, which is purdue.edu slash agbarometer and read the actual report. And of course, copies of all the charts are out there and you can look at those in a little more detail as well. You can also join us for our next Corn and Soybean Outlook webinar, which will be on Wednesday, July 14th. That follows USDA's uh, release of the July World Ag Supply Demand Estimates. Um, so we encourage you to tap into that. You can register for that at our website, purdue.edu commercial ag. And of course, when you do that, you'll get an email from us. And if you happen to miss the live broadcast, you can always watch the recorded version, which we are able to post on the web with usually within uh, about 12 hours or so of when the, uh, the live broadcast takes place. So with that, I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of Michael Langemeyer and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thanks for listening.